Well, hello and welcome along to Church Online again. My name's Brendan McLaughlin and I'm the Senior Minister here at Erwood Anglican. And I want to begin with a story. It's of a guy that's uh, going skydiving and it's his very first solo jump. And wouldn't you know it, when he pulls on the ripcord, nothing happens. So he tries his backup chute and that doesn't deploy either. Uh, yet as the, the earth is sort of fast approaching, he notices a little black dot getting closer and closer to him. And as it, as it approaches, uh, he realises this little dot is actually a person coming up from the earth. And as this person gets closer, he calls out, you don't know anything about parachutes, do you? And the other guy yells out, no, do you know anything about gas barbecues? Well, I tell that story because our passage today is all about seeking help. And like those two unfortunate characters in the story, uh, the kind of help we're looking at today is of utmost importance in the Christian life. And that is seeking help with temptation. Now, if we need any convincing that the importance of seeking help with temptation uh, is up there, then can I remind us that it's actually part of the Lord's Prayer. All right? Jesus said, when you pray, say, lead us not into temptation. Now, most Christians know uh, that we are supposed to resist sin. All right? Most Christians know that uh, using the blood of Jesus as some kind of license to continue in our sin is akin to treading on the blood of Jesus. What many Christians fail to realise, though, or, or, or worse still, fail to admit, is just how bad we are at resisting sin and temptation ourselves. Uh, you see, after you've given in to a particular temptation, it actually gets harder to resist the next time or the time after that. You see, the more you give in, the harder it becomes to resist that sin. It reminds me of that saying, how's it go? It says, oh, look, giving up smoking is easy. I've done it hundreds of times. All right, but the, 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 the message of that little quote is that, that kicking bad habits is next to impossible. The Bible says habitual sin is impossible to beat on our own. And this is uh, where the importance of our passage lies. You see, as our regulars will know, we're working our way through the book of Hebrews across term three. And look, while some of the passages we've been looking at are quite difficult, the message of Hebrews is super simple. Right? The message is Jesus is supremely glorious Therefore, do not give up your faith in Jesus. And we've seen this message in every passage we've looked at so far in this series. So in Hebrews 1, we're told Jesus is more glorious than angels. Therefore, you need to pay the most careful attention. Hebrews 2.1, or be obsessed with Jesus. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 said Jesus is our pioneer, leading uh, the way through death for us. Therefore... Fix your thoughts on Jesus, Hebrews 3.1. Hebrews chapter 3 said uh, that Jesus is more glorious than Moses. Therefore, see to it that none of you has a sinful or unbelieving heart. Hebrews 3.12 and Hebrews 4, a Sabbath rest remains, uh, a heaven remains for the people of God. Therefore, make every effort to enter that rest. That's 4 verse 11. Look, our passage today tells us that Jesus is our high priest. And the job of a high priest, as we're going to see, is helping people with their sin. 
And I've got three points today to help us unpack this. So I want to begin sort of by familiarising modern Christians with something that was, was very common, uh, very common knowledge for our original recipients, and that is what a high priest is or what a high priest does. So I've titled our first point, The Role the High Priest Has. Our author then outlines why Jesus is able to take on this role. So I've titled that The Qualifications the High Priest Needs. We're then going to conclude with our application, and that is how Jesus helps with one of our greatest needs as Christians. And so I've titled this point The Help the High Priest Gives. Uh, But the Bible says that without this help, it is impossible for humans to gain long-term victory over those habitual sins that sort of plague our thoughts, that affect our prayers, and that sear our consciences. So if you have a particular sin in your life that you are desperate to defeat, then please come with me as we look at the role the high priest has, the uh, qualifications the high priest needs, and the help the high priest gives. And our passage begins uh, with these words, so Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who was ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, uh, for Christians, the the role or the office of high priest is quite foreign to us. And so uh, the danger is that when we read passages like this, it can often just go in one ear and straight out the other. But you see, for first century Jews, and that's what our original readers were, the high priest was known as the most important person in the Jewish faith. And the reason was, right, he was the one who would make you clean in God's eyes. You see, the Old Testament law reminded the people of Israel every single day that they were unclean And therefore, they were not allowed to come before the Lord in the temple. So according to the Old Testament law, if you ate the wrong food, you were unclean. If you touched a dead body, you were unclean. Uh, When a woman had her monthly period, she was unclean, as was anyone who touched her, i.e. her whole family. If you had a skin rash, you were unclean. When you had sex, you were unclean. If there was mold in your house, you were unclean, and so on and so forth. And when you were unclean, you weren't allowed to go near the temple, right? You weren't allowed near God because God could not have anyone unclean in his presence. And this is where the high priest came in, okay? So the high priest was to intercede for the people with God to make them clean. So we see this in chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And look, the most important sacrifice that would occur was on uh, the day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And Yom Kippur, it was, it was kind of like Christmas is for Christians, okay? It was the most important holiday on the Jewish calendar. And on Yom Kippur, the whole nation of Israel would gather at the temple to watch the high priest offer the Day of Atonement sacrifices. So the sacrifices, they were kind of like uh, the opening of presents on Christmas or or the, the, the fireworks on the 4th of July, right? It, it was the high point 
of this most sacred of celebrations. Now, the, 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 the sacrifices, they're quite complicated. You can read about them in Leviticus 16. But the summary is this. So the high priest, he would start off by going into a particular tent where he would strip off and have a bath, all right? It was to signify being uh, clean. He needed to be cleansed before he would go and do these, uh, these sacrifices. Then he would put the high priestly garments on. They were very elaborate, very expensive uh, garments that were uh, to signify the high honour and dignity of the role of high priest. You can actually go and see what we think those, those, those garments look like uh, if you want to look them up on Google. Then he would sacrifice a bull for his own sins and a goat, sorry, a ram, sorry, and a goat for the sins of the people. Now we can actually see that in Hebrews 5 verse 3. He offered sins for himself and the people. And then he would take some of the blood from the sacrifices and he would sprinkle it in front of the ark inside the Holy of Holies. But before, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he had to take a censer full of incense so that the smoke would actually conceal the top of the ark. That's where God resided. And he needed to do that so that he would not die. That's Leviticus 16.13. I believe uh, in later years, they would actually tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest so that if he did die, the other priests could just drag him out without having to, to go in themselves. And here's the thing. If he did survive, which we believe he did most of the time, the high priest would then have a second bath, right? Got to be clean. And he would get into his normal priestly robes and then offer further sacrifices. Now, why am I telling you all this? It's because the people for the whole time would be standing outside watching the, 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 the high priest go through all these, uh, all these sacrificial practices. And the reason they'll be doing it is because they're kind of, they're kind of willing the high priest on to succeed. Because if the high priest succeeds then I'm cleansed of my sin. My sins have been atoned for and I can now come into God's presence. So friends, when the, when the author says that Jesus is our great high priest, or we see that in chapter 5 verses 1 to 3, what he's saying is Jesus is the most important person in your religious life, in your faith. The reason being is Jesus is the one who atones for your sins and allows you to come into God's presence as clean. So <clears throat> that's the role Jesus has as our high priest. He's the one who can make us clean. However, as any self-respecting Jew would know, not just anyone can be a high priest. We see this in verse 4. Uh, and no one takes this honour on himself, but receives it when called by God, just, just as Aaron was. So in verses 4 to 10, the author gives us three reasons why Jesus is qualified to be our high priest. And the first is in verse 5. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son... Today I have become your father. Now that's a quote from Psalm 2. The author's actually already quoted Psalm 2 back in chapter 1 when he said that Jesus is more glorious than angels. Why? Because God never said to an angel, you are my son. But what the author is saying in chapter 5 is, you cannot actually get higher than a son. It's like when a, when a teacher is promoted to being a principal of a, of a big school, all right? That will be their last promotion. 
there's nothing above that. It's like becoming CEO. There's nothing above CEO. And so uh, given that Jesus holds the most senior position in existence, i.e. the Son of God, well, of course he's qualified to be high priest. Right? He's, he's more qualified than anyone who ever lived. Right, so that's the first qualification. The second is in verse 6. Uh, read it with me. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh, who on earth is this Melchizedek? I hear you ask. Well, we're going to have an entire sermon on him in two weeks' time uh, because all of Hebrews 7 is about Melchizedek. So I don't want to spoil uh, chapter 7 for us. It's kind of like my, uh, my wife spoiled the movie The Sixth Sense for one of our friends. One of our friends said to Deb, oh, and what did you think of The Sixth Sense? And Deb said, oh, I'd love to see it again now that I know that Bruce Willis's character was dead the whole time. And my friend says, oh, what did you tell me that for? I haven't seen it yet. And Deb says, well, why did you ask me about it in the first place? So without spoiling too much, okay, Melchizedek is only mentioned... Um, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 4, in, in one verse in Genesis chapter 4, when he meets Abraham. And he meets Abraham after Abraham returns from battle. And Melchizedek is called the priest of the Most High God. So Abraham gives him a tenth of his spoils of war. And then we never hear of Mel from Melchizedek again. Right? So it's kind of like uh, he jumps on screen out of nowhere takes a tenth of, of, of Abraham's spoils and then jumps off screen again, never to be seen or heard from again. Uh, so Hebrews 3.7 says he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, the reason this is important is because Melchizedek is only mentioned one other time in the whole of the Old Testament, and that's in Psalm 110 that the author just, uh, just quoted here. And that Psalm 110 tells us that the Messiah will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He won't be a priest in the order of Aaron because Aaronic priests all died and then they were replaced by a successor. To be a priest in the order of Melchizedek means to be a priest from all eternity to all eternity. Now, who does that sound like? Someone who has been around since the beginning of time and who will go on to live forever. All right, Jesus. Jesus is qualified to be high priest because he is the only one who can be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Third qualification comes in verse 8. Uh, again, read it with me. Though he was a uh, son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, we touched on this a few weeks ago. Uh, what does it mean for, for Jesus to learn obedience or to be made perfect? Doesn't mean Jesus wasn't perfect before. Well, in a sense, yes. Now, by this, we don't mean to say that Jesus was disobedient before he suffered on the cross. Uh, Jesus wasn't morally imperfect, okay? If you recall from a few weeks ago, what the author means is Jesus never had his obedience tested. You see, God the Father said to Jesus, Obey me and I will crush you. 
Yet even under the certainty of infinite punishment, Jesus obeyed the Father. He saw obeying the Father as of greater importance than even his own well-being. And because Jesus succeeded where we sinful humans have failed, what that means is he didn't need to die for his own sins, he could die for ours. All right? He has offered, as high priests do, a sacrifice for our sins. And these three qualifications mean Jesus is completely fit to be our high priest, right? to intercede with the Father for his people. And who are his people? Right? Verse 9, those who obey him. Just like Paul says in Acts 26.20, simply proclaiming repentance and faith is not enough. You have to obey him as well. And obedience is where this passage gets even more wonderful. Because having our sins atoned for by our high priest is not the end of a Christian's life. It's the beginning. Uh, in response to this great salvation, Christians are then to spend the rest of their lives in obedience to God. It's actually morally wrong not to. Uh, what do I mean? I mean, think about it. Imagine you do something really horrible to someone and they found it in their heart to forgive you for that horrible, horrible thing. You don't then just turn around and say, well, if you're going to forgive me, then I might just do it again and again and again. Right? Of course you don't do that. To be a Christian, right, to have your sins atoned for, means living to obey God for the rest of our days. But herein lies our big problem. As Galatians 5 tells us, there is a battle going on inside every Christian. And that battle is against the sinful nature. Right? We as Christians will always be tempted by the world, the flesh and the devil, this side of heaven. And this battle cannot be won by ourselves. It is simply beyond us. Now, the beauty of this passage is that a high priest doesn't just offer sacrifices for sin. He helps in the people's fight against sin. So this is hinted at in chapter 5, verse 2. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. So that was what the, uh, the Aaronic priests did. Jesus himself takes this role on and he takes this role very seriously. Uh, we see this in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tested in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So in order to be the absolute best counsellor, helper, friend that he could be in our fight against sin, Jesus did two things, all right? So number one, he experienced temptation himself. Now when it says he has been tempted in every way, it doesn't mean Jesus experienced every single temptation known to mankind. Like, Jesus did not experience all the temptations that women experience, or that old people experience. 
because he didn't get to live as those people, did he? See, what the author means is Jesus has experienced the full breadth of temptations that humans experience. So, for example, John Piper says this, Jesus was tempted by pride and hubris when he slammed his opponents in debate. Jesus was tempted to lie in order to save his life. He would have been tempted by greed and covetousness, being born into poverty. He may have been tempted to dishonour his parents because they were always more sinful than he was. He was tempted to take revenge when wronged, to lust when the sinful woman wiped his feet with her hair. He was tempted to judge others when Peter's bravado turned into denying him. Uh, he was even tempted to complain against God when the innocent, like John the Baptist, suffered. On top of that, we know he was tempted by Satan to take the kingdom without suffering, and he was finally tempted in the garden uh, of Gethsemane. Jesus suffered more, uh, tempted, was tempted by more than anyone else in human history. Whenever else has anyone had sweat like blood, drops of blood? Now, why would Jesus go through all this? I mean, think about it for a second. Why would Jesus even consider becoming human and being faced with a lifetime of temptation? Well, part of the reason, according to this passage, is to make him a better counsellor to us so he can help us in our fight against sin. Read verse 15 again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. All right. The second thing that makes Jesus a wonderful counsellor is he never gave in. And what this means is he has infinitely more experience than you or I do in resisting temptation. C.S. Lewis explains it this way. He says, you and I have at best a couple of hours or a couple of days experience in resisting temptation. Why? Because we give in almost immediately. Jesus never gave in. And what that means is he resisted temptation his whole life. And that extensive experience means he is even better at helping us. Now, the final question is, why did he do this? That's in the most wonderful verse, chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, we don't need to stand outside the temple anymore waiting to see if the high priest's sacrifices will be accepted this year. Why? Because Jesus has brought his people eternal salvation. Hebrews 5.9. Right? Christians now have unfettered access to God, to, to, the, to the throne of grace, so that we can find mercy and grace in our time of need. And Jesus wants us to approach that throne with confidence. So here's what we do. If you've been waiting for the application for today, here it, here it is. Step one, instead of fighting a losing battle against our sin in our own strength, we take it to the expert. We take it to the Lord in prayer. 
All right? The whole line from the Lord's Prayer is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How do we do that? Step two, we confess our sin. All right? It is impossible to achieve long-term victory over our sin unless we're first confessing it. All right? Start with the big ones and do it every day. The Lord's Prayer tells us we should confess our sins whenever we're praying. All right? Forgive us our sins. And then step three, ask for God's help. Have you ever just stopped and said, you know what, God, my pride tells me I can do this by myself. But the evidence speaks to the contrary. I've tried, I desperately tried defeating my sin in my own strength hundreds and hundreds of times, but to no avail. So please help. Please pour out your mercy and your grace in this my time of need. Friends, to close, Simon Manchester tells a story of a parishioner who visited, sorry, of a minister who visited an elderly parishioner in his home. And the minister noticed that this parishioner sat in his back room across from an empty chair. There was an empty chair there. And when he asked the parishioner about the empty chair, the parishioner confessed that he had, he had told a previous minister many, many years before that he had trouble praying. He had trouble talking to God. He had trouble uh, imagining that God wanted to listen to his prayers. He saw God as very distant and very unsympathetic to his needs. And so what this old minister told him uh, was to put, it, put an empty chair across from him and speak to that empty chair as though he would a friend and picture Jesus as that friend in that chair. Well, a few years later, that old Christian man passed away and his daughter rang the minister to ask if he would take the funeral. And the minister, of course, agreed. And the daughter said to him, look, you'll be pleased to know that my father passed away sitting across from that empty chair with his arm leaning on the armrest. Friends, that's how we live the Christian life. With Jesus as our friend and our helper. Have we trials and temptations? Take it to the Lord in prayer.